the two passages, we, one we read and another we sang, Psalm 104 and Psalm 150, are both psalms talking about creation, although from a little bit different uh, perspectives and views. And you might be thinking to yourself, why are we singing and talking about creation today? I thought it was Easter Sunday, Pastor John. You know, we're supposed to talk about the hope and resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. And we'll get there. Be patient. We're going to get there in, in just a second. The reason why, though, is because it's so important that we look at creation and see God's goodness in creation and how he designed the world to be in the relationship that he wants to have with creation and creation with God. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand the magnitude of our sin and how it has corrupted all of creation and has made the world a difficult place for us to really enjoy and, and find rest in and live and enjoy God, our Father. And if we can't understand the magnitude of our sin, we're not going to understand our desperate need of a Savior. And if we can't see our desperate need of a Savior, we're never going to be able to taste and enjoy the hope that we have because of the resurrection power of our Heavenly Father. It's incredible. So we've got to look back to Genesis. We've got to look back to creation and ask the question, God, what were you doing? Why is it, why is it that after each day, you, when you created, you kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. What does that mean? And I think we find some of the answers in these two psalms that we sang, we read, and we also sang. In Psalm 104, it says specifically, may the, may the Lord rejoice in his works. May the Lord rejoice in his works. May he take pleasure in, may he enjoy his works. May he be glorified in his creation. God wants to enjoy his creation. And that's no different from any of the rest of us when we create, isn't it? We want to take joy in our creation. And if for no other reason than that, God is good when he created. It's because it brought him pleasure and glory. And he, he, uh, he loved his creation. That is a good thing. But the neat thing is it didn't stop there. We also read or sang Psalm 150. And Psalm 150 says this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This is the cool thing. Let this sink in to your minds this morning. God not only created so that he can enjoy his creation, this Psalm 150 tells us that God also created and is good because he desires his creation to enjoy him. God wants his creation to enjoy him. This is this is incredible. This is not just like empty praise that God is calling us to as his children. This isn't peasants, you know, being, you know, demanded by their tyrant king to say, praise me, praise me. No, like it says in Philippians 4, it says we need to rejoice continually. Rejoice in the Lord always. We need to find joy in the Lord always. This is not empty praise. We respond in worship and praise because God is good and he is satisfying and he gives us Every good gift is from our Heavenly Father. Every good gift. So we can see that in creation, part of God's divine plan was to create something not only that would bring Him joy and enjoyment, but it would also, in that creating, would allow creation to find joy in Him. Now for years as a Christian, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, I can't tell you how many years I lived my life thinking that my pleasure and God's pleasure were at odds with each other. That it was either God being happy and enjoying life and creation, or it was me enjoying life and creation. 
I thought that until I became a father. When I became a father, I started opening up new ways of seeing things. Because one of my favorite things as a father is to buy ice cream. Not just to buy ice cream for me, it's to buy ice cream for my kids. I love that. It's one of my favorite things to watch them just dig into the ice cream at Mooville and enjoying every last bite, seeing it smeared all over their faces, especially when they're small. I take great joy and pleasure that, more so than I take in, in the ice cream myself. I love watching my kids enjoy the ice cream. But then on the same, uh, at the same time, my kids, do you know what one of their greatest joys in life is? Their father buying them ice cream. They love that. They love it when I, am, I bring them down the road and I'm like, are we going to go to the left or to the right? That's the big question at the end of our road. Because if we go right, they know there's not a whole lot of right going up 66, except for Mooville. And so they know, they know we're going up to get some ice cream. And they enjoy that. They love that. And so this, there's this like mutual, I take pleasure in providing for my children. And my children take pleasure in me, their father, providing for them. And it's a beautiful thing. And we see that in Genesis when he created. God wants to take pleasure and joy and takes glory from his creation. And we as his creation can also at the same time take joy in him. That's why First Timothy says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything, everything to enjoy. Our satisfaction and joy and goodness is wrapped up in our Father. That's why John Piper can say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is a travesty of sin. Not that what God was cut off from his source of joy, it's that his children were cut off from our source of joy. We were cut off. No wonder God hates sin when he sees his children that he desires to have that relationship with cut off from the sole source of everything that is good, everything that can satisfy, everything that can give hope, and everything that can give rest and peace. That would make me upset as a father as well. You know, one day my kids will grow up and they'll be able to buy their own ice cream. And that's good. I'm not complaining. I'm kind of actually hoping for that. I want them to buy their own ice cream. But you know what? There's no time in my life that I'm going to grow up to the point that I can provide for myself better than God can. That I can bring more joy and satisfaction into my life than he can. Can I rejoice? What can I rejoice in apart from God? What do I have that will not pass away or come to an end? What do I have that brings comfort and hope that will not eventually, when I lose it, bring also sorrow and pain? So we should not be surprised that the source of all that is good is God. And in that relationship, we find that good. So that is why God, when he said he created, each day he looked at it and he said, this is good. Because he brings, it brings him joy. And you know what? That relationship with him brings us joy as well. If you had had your Bibles open to Psalm 53, keep them there. And if you haven't opened your Bible to Psalm 53, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, as Pastor John talked about, God created everything, and he created everything good. Um, and, and a lot of us know the story that he created the universe, everything in it, um, and, and sin wasn't here. The stain of sin was not present on his creation. He declared everything good. Um, and Adam and Eve, mankind that existed, 
um, were walking with God in the garden. They were with him, enjoying relationship with him. Until together, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the rest of the story. Sin entered the world. Um, and we see it in our world every day. We look around and we see, um, you know, we see terrorism and war and sex trafficking and child abuse and, and you know, corporate greed, personal greed. We see all this sin. And we know it's real. And when we look at it and we mourn a lot, we say, oh, this is terrible out there. But sometimes I think we just look at the darkness out there and we forget about the sin that's in here. Um, it's really easy to pass off our, our bad habits as just that. They're just bad habits. Um, I'll give you an example from my life. If the people that know me know I love to argue and debate things, and it can be anything. It doesn't matter. You want to talk politics? Cool. I just got a van. You want to argue about whose van is cooler? We can have that argument. Um, and uh, one of the things that I used to do all the time when I would, I would pull out the old smartphone and I would argue with people online. Some I knew, some I didn't know. I would just argue with people because I thought it was fun. And Katie would know I was doing it because we'd be sitting on the couch together and she'd be talking to me. And sometimes I'll be like looking at something and listening, you know, she'll get the mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then she wouldn't hear anything. She'd just hear tick 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 And I'm sitting there on my phone ticking away. Um, and, you know, was that a bad habit? Yeah. Was it a waste of time? Yeah. Was it sin? I, for me, it was. I was storing up division. I was trying to win arguments, regardless of what, how the other person felt at the end of the day. I was, um, you know, I was not pointing to people, pointing to people to Christ in that situation. Um, and we can say, oh, okay, maybe it was a sin, but it wasn't a big deal. Those aren't big deal things. Let's look at Psalm 53, verse 1. It says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. And if you're in church today, or watching online, or whatever, I can assume that you probably have this idea, you have a belief in God, and you could say, yeah, those people who don't believe in God, they're, they're foolish. And I would argue that, aren't we kind of all that fool too? When we sin, we are, we are, when we decide to lie, when we decide to steal or lust or whatever, we're kind of saying with our heart, yeah, there is no God, because we are ignoring um, the consequence of God. We are, we are acting as if God doesn't exist, there's no consequence for the things I do. Um, the fool is corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. No one is good. That's us. Um, but we can read that and we can say, not one? God, not one person is good. And verse 2 says, God looked down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. When God looks down from heaven and he can, he can see everything, um, Spurgeon says, he saw all nations and all men in all nations and all hearts in all men and all motions of all hearts. He saw neither a clear head nor a clean heart among them all. Where, God, where God's eyes see no favorable sign, we may rest assured there is none. For God to be God, he has to be omniscient. That means he knows everything. He sees everything. You can try and hide your sin. I could try and hide arguing with people on Facebook by going into another room. But God saw it. Katie may not have, but God saw it. We can ask Jonah about whether God sees our sin or not. He finds, he finds it, and he knows it. Um, verse 3 says, They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This picture of sin keeps getting darker and darker, that we see that none of us do good. We all live as if God doesn't exist. Um, it just gets darker and darker. And so we ask on Easter Sunday, this day of celebration, this day of, you know, we wear our, our bright clothes, and we, we celebrate with our family and say, Why are you talking about sin today? First, I'll say, blame him. He told me to. 
Um, but seriously, um, I think when we look at our sin, it gives us a proper view of ourselves. We need to understand that we are desperately in need of a Savior, that we are corrupt, that the smallest sin, no matter what it is, um, the ones we think are small, like gossip or white lies or, um, you know, our judgmental hearts, they're not small. These sins carry cosmic weight that ripped apart the design that God had initially. And if we think, well, if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten that fruit and no one up until now had sinned, my sinful arguing with people, that would have been enough to warrant this, that my sin carries huge weight. Your sin carries huge weight. Uh, number two, when we can view our sin properly, we can view the cross as it should be viewed. We should look at that with horror, that it was your sin, that it was my sin that put that crown of thorns on his head, that whipped Jesus, that nailed his hands to the cross, that drove the spear in his side. My sin did that. Your sin did that. No matter how small our sin is, it was you and it was me that did that. And finally, when we view our sin properly, we can view the cross as it should be viewed with awe, that while we were yet sinners, he did that for us. Someone recently once told me this. To get married, you need to let go of yourself and your own wants. To have children, in some ways you need to let go of your partner and both of your wants. For those of you who either are or have been a parent, you know that truth way better than I ever could in this stage of my life. You know very well the sacrifices it takes to raising children. One of the first things that you may sacrifice is sleep. Going and taking care of a screaming infant three in the morning, that's sacrifice. All throughout, you might sacrifice finances. Just a simple Google search shows that the average child costs somewhere between, and it ranged, 20, 30, 60, as high as $100,000 to raise a child. Many parents even sacrifice their own dreams. They wanted to get something out of life. They wanted to accomplish something for themselves or for their spouse. But very quickly, children put that on pause or stop that altogether. Let me ask, why? Why would somebody voluntarily do this? Why would somebody voluntarily put their life on hold for the sake of children? The answer is, in some ways, frustratingly simple. Because they, they love their children. Even going along with that, the worst part is that parents are, are rarely given the proper thank you for these sacrifices. I've never heard of an infant crying at three in the morning and dad coming out to take care of him, stop and say thank you. Children rarely know to, to say thank you for their parents taking money out of their retirement account to pay for sports. And even in rarer occasions, children don't always know to say thank you when a parent gives up on their career, turns down an offer to move across the country for a pay raise because their children are in school in a certain place. But what is so 
beautiful about this. This idea of this specific sacrificial love that a parent has for their child is that this is exactly what God does or has done for us. We've talked about the beauty of creation, the, the specific design that God had for us as his children, the specific design to be in relationship with us so that we could talk with God, we could be with God, we could know our creator. What a beautiful blessing. But then humanity decided it had a better option, a better idea, and it turned from God, it fell from God committed sin. And ever since, as we've already heard this morning, we look at the world today. We look at the scars that this world feels. We look at the suffering that's happening because we thought we knew what was best for ourselves. And now, we're going to talk about what God did in light of that. And a way to talk about that specifically is to go to one verse in, in Scripture, and it's really quick. It's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. You can turn there if you wish, but I'm just going to read it out here for you. It says this. This is God talking to the prophet Isaiah, where he says this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God here is talking about his servant. His servant has another name, a name that many of us have heard before, the name Jesus Christ. The servant that God told Isaiah about thousands of years ago, and people read about and they hoped for for hundreds of years finally became fulfilled when God decided to send his son, his child, to this earth, fully taking on the form of man, fully taking on a physical human body. He suffered pain just as you and I have. He suffered hunger, just as you and I have. He suffered exhaustion, just as you and I have. But at the same time, he fully encompassed God. He was fully man, and he was fully God. While he was man, and he felt our weakness, he was God, and he had his perfection. And he lived a life that you and I could never live, a life where he never lied, where he never gossiped, where he never lusted, where he never did any sin, to the point that he alone, because of his perfection, could have a right relationship with God. He alone deserved that. You and I didn't. And yet, as parents sacrifice for their children. Christ sacrificed for us. He sacrificed specifically by, with this perfect state and with this perfect righteousness that he carried in order to give him a relationship with God. He put that on the cross. He suffered on the cross. He died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, 
He didn't just make the most popular Christian jewelry item. What he did was he took the sin off of your shoulders, like taking a coat off of you. The weight that you've been bearing and that I've been bearing for our lives. He took that weight off of our shoulders and he put that weight on his own as he sat up there bleeding to death on the cross. So that your sin problem and that my sin problem would be paid for. God did that for us. God sacrificed for us. Just as a parent does for their child. So did God do for us to the point now that all we can do in response is accept this gift and experience true rest. I just got back from a, a vacation yesterday. I was able to go with my, my future in-law family and travel to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We were able to find uh, a nice Airbnb that was far away from the main part of the beach. Um, it was still on the beach shore, and there was very few people we were, we were able to see. It was really nice. Um, we were able to get plenty of time together as a family and hanging out with friends and some much-needed rest. And at the same time, I woke up this morning, and I was exhausted. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been on a vacation and, or, or you've set out to rest? And yet it feels like in the process of, of trying to get rest, you end up more tired afterwards. Has that ever happened to you or is that just me? We, we take our long weekends. We take our sleeping in mornings. We take our vacations. We take our hobbies and we, we use them in an effort for us and our own strength to accomplish our own rest. And in the process, it seems like we're always chasing something greater. And the worst part about it is, you know, I've mentioned this to different people before. And their response to me is usually something along the lines of, well, it's, it's, it's really not going to get any better. Years go on. Bodies become more sore. Do more things. A couple of injuries along the way. And maybe years down the line, it's even hard to get out of bed in the morning. But is it really true that we can never experience rest? Is that actually true? Is there a chance it can get better? Can we have hope? In closing this morning, I want you to open up your Bibles. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 11. We're going to be verses 28 through 30. Once again, Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. I'm going to read it here for you. This is the words of Jesus Christ. And he says this. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, we started with the beauty and design that God had for creation. We started with the design that God had to have a relationship with us in a perfect world. And then we saw how we had a different plan, and that brought sin into this world, and now this world is cursed and under powers of evil. And it's very easy to see that. And then we went to the work of, of Jesus Christ in light of that, and his, his sacrifice and his death on the cross to pay for your sins and for mine. And now, finally, we get to the hope. Because Jesus Christ did not stay dead. Because Jesus Christ, according to the word of God that God has given to us, rose from the dead. He conquered death. He beat it by his own power. Death is that thing that, whether we like to admit it or not, we're all running from. We're all trying to avoid it. It's one of those things that humans just can't seem to beat. And yet Jesus did. And not just beating death, but he gave us the, experience, the, the ability to experience true, fulfilling, and satisfying rest. And the answer to that, and the way to get that, is in this passage. And it starts with the first few words. Where Jesus simply says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. Because by Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead, he gave us the ability to restore this broken sin relationship that we have with God. And the way that we can do that, Jesus says here, is, is come to him. What that means is, is that we need to go to Jesus. We need to talk with Jesus, talk with God, pray to God, ask him for forgiveness of our sins, all the evil that you've done in your life and I've done in mine, we need to ask Jesus to forgive us of those sins. That's called repentance. And then after we, we ask him to do that, we believe that Jesus died on this cross to pay for our sins. And when that happens, we can have a relationship with Jesus. We can have satisfaction in life. And if there's anything else we're looking for in this world that will give us satisfaction apart from believing in Jesus, having a relationship with our God, is going to leave us, as Jesus said in this passage, weary and heavy laden. We cannot experience true rest until we have a salvation that only God, through the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, can give us. It feels hard to think that we can experience rest right now. But God has given us that opportunity. But not just that, is that God has given us a hope. By Jesus rising from the dead, the Bible says... That can show us that, that one day Jesus will come back. Jesus will return to this earth. Jesus will come to this earth that is so broken. 
that has so many issues with it. And Jesus will be able to restore this world. And not just that, but he will restore us. Because when Jesus, the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, there will be a beautiful transformation that we will experience, that our bodies will experience, where, where Jesus, by his own power, will transform our bodies into what the Bible calls glorified bodies. These are bodies with no weakness, with no feelings of soreness, with no injuries, with no shortcomings. They will be glorified. And just as Jesus rose from that, so too will we do that one day. And when that happens, we will have the ability to be with God for eternity. Where we will be with God with our, with our glorified, perfected bodies forever. We will have no shortcomings. We will have no sin. There will be no anger, no evil, no suffering. That is the hope we get from the resurrection. And if we believe in Jesus today, if we accept his message, his gospel message today, then not only do we get to experience rest in the present, knowing that where we're going to go, but we can have rest in the future, knowing that God will be faithful with his promises that he has given to us. Friends, if you're tired, know that there is a way to find rest. Both now in the present day and later on in the future. Believe in this message, in this gospel message. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus to pay for your sins. Go to him for your satisfaction in life and your hope to come.